Hello and welcome to episode 125, our third birthday episode of WB40, the weekly tech podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, and Chris Weston. Well, hello, Matt. It's our third birthday episode. This is the episode which we turn three years old, which is quite a frightening prospect, isn't it? Because three years is a long time. Three years is a is a career for uh, some people in uh, some jobs. Uh, it is. Um, yeah, it's, it, the time has flown past, literally flown past, and and you know, so much has changed in terms of well, how you and I earn a living has changed in terms of how we've learned to be able to make a podcast that doesn't sound like a bag of spanners has changed. Um, political, political stuff hasn't really changed much, has it? No, not in three years. No, it's just got, uh, more, it's got more worse. Excellent. Um, but yes, for three years, we've been churning out this stuff week in, week out, which is... Um, a testament to our ability to churn stuff out, I think, more than anything else. Well, exactly. the pe- it's staying power. That's the that's all it shows, isn't it, really? Uh, exactly. Perseverance. Um, and meanwhile, the BBC has taken the concept of the podcast and turned it into live television programming, <laughs> which, quite frankly, I think misses the point somewhat. But there we go. Um, well, listen, so, we uh, wouldn't complain, would we? If they turned us into a live TV programme, we'd be all for it. Uh, well, it depends. It's at 11.30 at night, I might be a bit grouchy about it. But, um, you know, if anybody's listening, Zoe, if you're, if you're listening, you know, yeah, put, put it in a word, word in for commissioning. <laughs> I'm sure we've got all it takes to be um, a late-night television programme on one of the channels that they don't actually have on live TV anymore. So um, looking back over three years, are there any particular highlights for you that have inspired you or changed how you think about things or just tickled your fancy? Well, I, I guess there must be lots of things, otherwise we wouldn't still be doing it, or at least I wouldn't have given up. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, the, we, we talk about this quite regularly, or, you know, kind of every year, it seems, at the end of the year, we look at back and we say, well, what was great about this year? And always it's... Um, it's most often it's the, it's the interviews, isn't it, that we have. And that's a... if you, if I, you know, Very difficult to pick a favourite over three years. I would say one of the th- ones that I was most uh, affected by in terms of how I think about the subject was Nancy Doyle's because um, she took a very practical, pragmatic angle uh, around the whole po- the whole issue of autism and diversity and I think anybody who listened to that episode who has a team of people or, or runs an office or runs uh, you know, an environment where people work could relate to the way that different types of people work in those environments and maybe we can be a little bit uh into not intolerant necessarily but slightly impatient of people who want it slightly different you know to suit them and we feel that prima donna in there why should you just fine but the fact is that people have genuine uh, uh genuine preferences which aren't just oh, i'd rather but actually I find it quite hard to work if if we're in this sort of situation or if this happens. So, and if you get them into a situation which is right for them, you can get a, a great deal out of them in there, and, and you can change their life as well in terms of how miserable or happy they are at work. And there's a you know there's a win-win really. So, I guess that one just because it was it was practical and everybody could probably relate to it. How about you? Yeah, I, well, that's interesting. It's one I need to reflect back on actually because the. Um uh, day one has been completed now. We're recording this on Sunday night, and uh, so I've had my first day in the new job. And actually, one of the challenges that's come up um, from the get-go is that we have groups of people in uh, the communities which we serve uh, that have no literacy. And so how do you go about providing digital services for people who can't read and write? 
and that actually from the get-go is that there's a similar set of challenges and it might be because of neurodiversity it might be just because of 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 a bunch of historical factors but nonetheless how do you provide digital services for people who uh, aren't able to read and write is a really interesting and like quite fundamental oh yeah I've never really had to think about that before. That's going to be interesting. I think it's probably um, Nancy's probably going to be somebody who I will be referring back to on, on some yeah. of that stuff. As uh, well. that's, that that isn't interesting. I mean, that's something that I've um, dealt with in the in the whole uh, custodial and um, offender management because you, what you're trying to do is get people to have jobs. That's keeping people out of trouble, and it's very very difficult to get a job if you can't read. And so, and also if you're digital, digitally excluded. So, all of those things are a part of that conversation and. The neurodiversity is is a is a an aligned and sometimes sometimes connected conversation too. Absolutely, I think for me, um, I've I've really relished the ability to go out and talk to people who are probably outside just of the boundaries of what most people would think about when they think about the management of technology. And if you think about our core. Our core purpose, we can talk about it in terms like that, but as much as we have a core purpose, it's about getting people thinking about different ways, different influences on the way we go about managing technology in modern organisations. And um, the two that spring to mind for me where I felt actually, hopefully that's, hopefully some people have stopped listening because it's too much, because that would be a good sign. And also some people have come out of that going, whoa, that, I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, one was Steve Chapman, the artist who um, I initially got in touch with because of his uh, Sound of Silence podcast series where he's interviewing 100 people over 18 months. And the interviews all consist of just listening to the silence between the two of them for two minutes, which I think is just a, such a brilliant, silly, wacky, wonky concept and thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. And Steve's a great guy. And... Um, uh, that I just yeah that one I thought was brilliant and also Jude Jennison who um, I spoke to oh about a year ago I guess now and Jude is the ex-IBMer who now uh, gives people uh, support around management style and leadership style uh, with a small stable of horses that she uses to be able to get people to be able to see how they interact with one another and how they interact with the horses and how if you want to take a horse to water, you better be nice to it, which is the main thing I took from that whole interview. So those two, I think, have been um, have been really good. Um, I think the other thing, though, that is, I don't think either of us were expecting at all when we went into, should we do a podcast? Yeah, right. Um, was the WhatsApp group, which we've got around 50 people um in that group if you want to join it just tweet us and we'll send you the magic link we used to have it publicly but then we got lots of dodgy spam on it but um and that's become a really um nice kind of self-supporting community of people from quite different um organizational backgrounds facing some similar challenges facing some very different challenges um and it's a actually really personally i find incredibly valuable resource now of groups of people who want to be able to help each other which is brilliant yeah, I would say I'd completely echo that. I think that was a uh, you know that that's been a resource for us and feedback and um, I, I think helpful uh, forum for the people in it uh, most of the time. Um, but I also think that you know taking your point about those people that we speak to who are outside of the sort of what you might call a kind of traditional technology focused audience, I also think some of the people and and the fact that we have spoken to so many people who are in that area and the slightly different way that they 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 look at things and if you think about companies like sumo logic that we've talked to and apprenticeship 
providers and recruiters and all of those kind of all of those people uh, with a real passion for what they do and that and that's you know i think yes the outside is thing because it gives you a, a counterpoint to what you do but also the fact that we've managed to talk to some people who are really good at what they do and bring a level of enthusiasm to subjects that sometimes as people who uh, run technology or manage it or advise people or whatever it might be we do or in the past we can get a bit jaded and we see it interact with it on a certain basis you know maybe recruitment for example and and the, you know you look at the whole totality of or an industry like recruitment and there are quite a lot of bad ones and there are some good ones and we work you know with the the, the bad ones you know once if we if we've got any sense and we work with the good ones more often and getting to those people who really know what they're talking and make a difference that is quite affirming and doing this is it gives you this do that more would normally yeah i think we've been um possibly lucky although probably there's a there's an element of how discerning we are at play here but i've only had one interview that i've done that i've not been able to use because it was just not very interesting <laughs> and i know different people will have different views on different interviews and the extent to which they they have peaked interest or whatever but the fact that only we, i mean we must be getting on for about 100 people who we've interviewed now across the uh, the three years and uh to only have one which didn't run i think is uh, is a pretty good batting yeah that's that's true you know and and you're right you know we talk to be interesting there's very rarely we talk to somebody we don't really know and and or haven't to and if we do you know pick the thing i think there have been a few people who have been on twice like kylie and that's a subject which is quite niche we come across it and work with a niche in our role as a but hellfire it's a complicated one it's good to have people who know what they're talking about when you and those are you know those are quite well, like the one I'm also like in sadly where was bad luck lots of people all good stuff so um we will be heading now into our fourth year which is very exciting and um so well I think we should get on with it with another interview. Absolutely. Let's continue as we mean to go on for the rest of this fourth year, the fifth year, sixth year, and 44th year, Matt, when we'll both be, well, we'll be heads in jars. Aren't we? Well, yeah, exactly. We'll just be able to do it through our artificially intelligent presence. So as promised, we have another interview. And this week, Matt, you met a chap called Ed Holroyd Pierce, and he's from a company called Virtual Internships. I think we can guess what they do. They provide <laughs> virtual internships, internships. and um, which is a quite an interesting concept, isn't it? How did you get on? It is. Um, yeah, yeah I, you do love a brand that basically does what it says on the tin, unlike Ron Seal, which obviously doesn't. Um, I think uh, it was interesting talking to Ed because he is somebody who's been organising internships for many years in a traditional manner, particularly helping, as we'll hear, uh, organizations find uh, the opportunity for so education opportunity uh, sorry education institutions to find opportunities for undergraduates in particular out in in asia um but they're taking it in a new direction so um i started actually by asking him a bit about what the the traditional business was like i'm ed holroy pierce and i've been in the um, broader internships industry for um 13 years um, our original company provides on-the-ground internships in Asia, um, mostly China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam. And over, particularly over the more recent few years, we've you know recognised that there are a lot of people who just can't do that. They can't go to Shanghai for two months over the summer, and it's a variety of reasons. You know, cost is a big one. Um, also, maybe they have family commitments. 
maybe they're doing studies that they need to be uh, attain, attending in person, um, a whole host of other reasons. Even things like anxiety um, or disabilities mean they can't do that. So uh, we founded virtual internships about 18 months ago to try and, first of all, break down some of those barriers and allow um, better access to work experience. Um, and also thinking a bit more about what the future looks like in terms of remote working and actually building those skills um, proactively in students and recent graduates. Uh, can we just talk a little bit about the the established business? I'm interested in to, you know, who are the sorts of organisations that have been bringing uh, graduates in? Where are they coming or intern graduates in? Where are they coming from? Uh, what are the sorts of skills that um, people are building? Yeah, sure. So um, we have about a thousand participants a year on those programs, um, mostly coming from the UK, the US and Australia. Um, but we do accept individual applicants from everywhere else in the world. Um, we mostly work with universities um, and with specific departments within those universities. Um, and it's where the university sees a uh, or gets excited by um, a new market and a specific industry. Um, you know, there's like Asia, it's a bit of a generalization, but there's so much exciting going on, huge populations, and they are solving some very important you know, problems worldwide. Um, I mean, in fact, the initial driver for setting this up at all was that um, China was having a really positive um, sort of decade uh, back in 2005 onwards and was hitting the headlines for all these in all these great industries you know china's doing this in finance china's doing this in the environment china's doing this in manufacturing and yet the only real opportunities for um, westerners or you know non-chinese people to go there were go backpacking or go and teach english and there was that real disconnect um i was lucky enough to do chinese at university so you know i i can make myself understood just about uh but I think there are so few people who are sort of willing and able to take on that language side of things that if we wait or we assume that the only people who should get work experience in Asia are people who speak fluent Asian languages, we're sort of really handicapping ourselves. So we set up this program where people get an English speaking supervisor in a company that's doing something interesting in their industry. And that way they can just make themselves a bit more global. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how the program works. Yeah, and, and who are the sorts of organisations that are bringing these interns in? Is there any particular pattern to it? Are they large? Are they established? Are they? It's basically our teams in in Asia who go out and persuade companies to take them on, um, and it varies a huge amount. It can be you know companies that are. We don't work with any really huge companies to be honest, um, because they're quite slow and they often have their own internship programs. Um, so mostly small, medium-sized businesses, they always have some international element to their business, which is kind of why they're interested in taking on an, an international intern. Um, they can be you know, foreigner-run, so it's like a, a British or an American expat entrepreneur who's running a business, um, or they can be very local. And perhaps they're thinking about getting you know, some international staff members and this is a really nice way of dipping their toe in the water. You know, can my team cope well with having a foreign intern in our otherwise totally Chinese or totally Japanese office? Let's see how it goes this summer. And maybe next year we will employ a, you know, uh, European sales manager or a, an American 
uh, you know, quality control guy. So we've had a few a few companies that give that as their reasoning for being willing yeah. to try. And how different culturally are organizations in uh, countries like China and Japan from the US or the UK? Yeah, I mean, I would say hugely. I think the interesting thing about um, many of those sort of Asian mega cities is that they are they're modernizing, but they're not necessarily internationalizing. So they they have their own culture, and you know a lot of that translates to the business culture as well. But it's not disappearing anytime soon. The businesses are not becoming more American or becoming more European. They're just becoming more modern, which is great. But it, it means people still need to take the time to understand them. So you know, I guess some examples would be the the importance of business cards. Um, you know, here in the UK, if you don't have a business card, it's not really that big a deal. And how you hand it to someone doesn't make too much of a difference. Whereas in Asia, particularly China, Japan, is very, very important. It's an extension of yourself, really. You hand it over with two hands in a very polite way, and it has to be facing the right way for the person to read it. And then they'll take a few seconds to look at it. You know, oh, that's an interesting name, or oh, your office is located in this region. Make some polite comments, that kind of thing. Likewise, if somebody hands you a brochure, a flyer, in the UK, it'd be kind of fine to scribble some notes on it. You'd be like, oh, this is an interesting meeting, just make some notes. And that, in a couple of Asian cultures, is not acceptable. You know, this is something that somebody else has given you. Um, it, it's very formal, polite, keep the flyer clean in front of you. And it's almost sort of to be revered, I guess. Um, uh, kind of quite a few of our host companies in China still have two-hour lunch breaks where people um, have a proper nap on their desks. Um, so you can imagine if you're a, a, a current student from, you know, University of Edinburgh or even University of you know Michigan, you go over there and they're just like, all right, enjoy your nap, see you at 2.30. It's quite a surprise. Um, and that's, that's what makes people kind of richer and better at dealing with scenarios. You know, those students who, who've been in that incredibly weird and potentially very awkward situation are going to go back to their home countries and in the future when they meet or deal with a Chinese business, it just might cross their mind. Like, oh, it's it's 1.45 p.m. I probably won't call them because they might be having a nap. Uh, you know, something like that it just makes you more rich culturally. Um, and those are very in-person experiences that I've, I've given and obviously relate totally to our those on-the-ground programs. But I think on the virtual side of things, there's actually as much potential to learn new things, new ways of communicating and make those students and participants sort of just as rich and as uh, better at understanding counterparties, better at empathizing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my one experience of doing, actually, no, I've had two experiences of doing work in Asia um, and one was with um, a team in Bangkok, a team of software developers in Bangkok. And um, actually, it wasn't until I got out with them that I was then able to really work with them remotely from London because mm, it's just yeah. you know getting to know each other and going through the you know the ceremonies of the thing that I re I can't remember anything about the work but I remember the um, the green mango with salt that yes. was given out and incredibly hot days and this incredibly refreshing yeah. thing that I've never come across before and it's brilliant and that kind of sharing of experience I think is important but so that the way you're you're taking this new business to be able to do virtual internships that idea of being able to help people understand cultural difference um it feels that that now is as relevant as 
for for somebody from the UK or the US to go to Asia as it is somebody going from the still very in-person experience of being in higher education to what is now the actually increasingly virtualized experience of modern work. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think it's, you know, everybody's on a spectrum and, you know, actually there's no, there's no perfection. There's no real end goal. It's just saying your exposure to different experiences and different ways of communicating will make you better at dealing with those things in the future. So, you know, on the cultural side, if it's a remote experience, they're obviously not going to sort of get that green mango with salt shaken on it. Um, but we can encourage them with our training alongside the internship to think about maybe cultural festivals, maybe religions, maybe reasons why people might not be at work, or even if they are at work, they might not be as present as you'd expect them to be. And I think that's a kind of recognition that we're all individuals, we're all human, and we're all shaped by our immediate surroundings. So if someone's trying to do a virtual internship with a British host company, and there's a deadline that's kind of around the 23rd of December, you sort of know you need to either get it in or you want to have that conversation beforehand. Like, actually, I'm doing my virtual internship from India. Uh, we don't celebrate Christmas. Can I work on this? And I'll get it to you by the 26th or 27th of December. That's a really kind of relevant conversation to have and to be able to navigate um, without that. And if you really went into it with just a sort of auto automatic or computerized mindset is like okay deadline is this deliver project by this date but yeah so we try and bring some human thinking into that process so how do the mechanics of it work how is it different from uh the more traditional internships yeah sure i'd say the main tangible difference is that um it works much better if it's project-based um that's probably true of an element to, to an element um, for regular in-person internships, but much more important for a virtual experience. Um, people are working across different time zones. We're not we're not suggesting that you know an intern is available at somebody's beck and call from nine a.m. till five thirty p.m. on the end of a computer connection because I don't think that does really work. There are sort of scenarios where it might if you're you know, a full-time employee and you're telecommuting and you know you have to just do this many sales calls or you have to sort of deliver something every five minutes, there might be that scenario. But for internships where it's, you know, both parties need to gain something out of the relationship, we feel like projects work much better. So um, we encourage the host companies and the interns to really lay things out very clearly in the first meeting and as the project gets going so that both parties understand the expected outcomes and that can be about timelines it can be about what resources there are to get this project done are there any templates are there any pet peeves um all those kind of things and actually try and get um you know get the framework sorted out relatively early on making sure that you take enough time to check back with the supervisor um that you know the, the project is looking good and you're along the right lines because there's nothing worse than working on something for two weeks remotely sending it through to someone and realizing that you got completely the wrong end of the stick so you're uh you're working with universities to be able to get uh placements for the university's students the students then you're matching with potential placements from 
small to medium sized businesses mostly from from the discussions we've had before typically yes um we're working on some bigger programs with um universities that have like a specific um department and i mean the example i can give is that there's a canadian university that really wants to work with us uh, in mechatronics they have 20 students that they want to do something virtual in engineering and on the host company side we're having kind of very initial conversations with an extremely large german um, automotive manufacturer that would be perfect you know and if we can bring this together that'll be excellent um but it's still a bit chicken and egg you know most the most the majority of companies that can make a relatively quick decision and allocate resources are small to medium-sized enterprises they're excited by having a bright student maybe in another country that wants to do some project work and they can square off a sort of, you know, half an hour to an hour per week of, yeah, I will check through this person's work. I will give them some feedback. I will make this valuable on both sides. Whereas once you hit the big companies, they're like, eh, we already allocate our resources to our summer internship program. We can't do this outside of that. Yeah. Who, who is it in organizations that you're dealing with? So for the, the placement organizations, is, is it across an organization or are there particular types of people that you generally are working with? Yeah, it varies a lot, actually. I mean, once the organizations hit a certain size, we often do get passed on to HR. But really, if there's a, um, you know, a decision maker or a stakeholder who wants to be a supervisor, then it's a much easier conversation. You know, it's just, I want to take on this intern, either, you know, can we pay them or they're going to be unpaid? Can I just get approval? Um, we do have some uh, clauses and advice on like, NDAs and you know we would always encourage a company to be cautious before sort of releasing any sensitive information to an intern these are mostly quite early stage or speculative projects you know go and research x in region y and pull together an excel or a powerpoint with new data rather than you know here's 20,000 um, entries in an excel sheet of our customers details please alphabetize them because <laughs> because that i mean from for my vintage the work experience round and uh, i did two sets of work experience both actually before university um and one was incredibly well structured and was with the local newspaper and they they obviously did it regularly and i had a great time and i've still got skills that i learned in that week that i i use today mostly actually for being able to work twitter um but then the other uh, was was in the HR department of a big Japanese electronics company, but in the west of London. And it basically, from memory, was filing, photocopying, and stapling, and none of those things exist anymore. What on earth do you get the work experience person to do? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's actually a good thing about virtual internships is that you know you really can't be asked to make coffee. <laughs> you know, you can't be asked to do the face copying. Um, and you know when when you turn things into a project with meaningful outputs for both sides, it is quite easy to get away from those types of menial tasks. Um, and, you know, even if, you know, businesses do need to get a lot of like boring stuff done, right? If you, if you rebrand, there's thousands of documents that need to have a logo updated, right? But it's rarely going to be efficient or secure to give that to a virtual intern. You know, that's not that's that's certainly we wouldn't let that that project pass through our hands. Uh, we'd say that's something that you need to use your own employees for. Um, but, you know, probably looking more at the the slightly 
interesting but speculative project where if you're a, a CEO or a, a sales and marketing manager, you've got something you know written on a piece of paper that came out of an interesting meeting that you just know you should look into and devote some time to, but you just can't. Well, now you potentially have a bright student somewhere who could pull together a 12-page PowerPoint on this new idea and you can see whether it's got legs. And that's quite exciting for both parties. You know, the student might look back a year later and see that that's actually become a department of the business or it's become a new sales channel or a marketing channel. Um, that, that kind of thing is quite impactful. Yeah, I think I guess if I think back to that photocopying and stapling at the electronics business, though, the other thing that I did experience, that, although the, the, the actual work I was asked to do was very mundane, there was something about just the osmosis effect of being in a place of work, which I've done SAS day jobs. I've worked in shops. So I had an experience of, of what it was like to do work, but that actually the office was a new experience for me. What do you think of the, the I mean, it's, a lot of this is intangible. I, I, so sometimes maybe it's quite hard to be able to, to even understand what is going on. But there, there were the things about, you know, the, the, the ceremony of the office, the lunch break, the, the, the you know, the, the chit chat and the, just the, the, the stuff becoming familiar with something that was an alien environment and which I would then go into for, for far too much of my working life. Um, but what, what do you think of the things that are kind of the, the secondary stuff that's actually maybe the most valuable learning that's going on when somebody's doing it virtually? Yeah, sure. So I guess, first of all, I'd say that we're not, we, we don't expect virtual uh, internships to totally replace regular internships. What we think is it's a good conduit to improve that access, maybe just to give people a bit of a broader exposure. You know, it'd be, it'd be nice as a student to have exposure to three or four different industries and different sizes of companies so you can start to think a bit more clearly about what you, what you might want to do in the end um, and where you might want to work. So we'd see um, virtual experiences really just supplementing that. Um, but I think, you know, the examples that you give, I can see direct virtual equivalents. You know, that kind of the, the nervousness and getting experienced with a video call right? Remembering to look at the camera rather than look at your own face on the screen. Um, sharing Google Docs and Google Drive and making sure that, you know, you're not giving the wrong people access, those kind of things. Um, and even just basic, tangible, but transferable skills like, like punctuality, you know, being on time for things. They're all, they all have a fairly direct virtual equivalent, which students can benefit massively from exposure to. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, none of us knows what uh, the workplace really will look like in the next five to 10 years. But I think having exposure to some of these technologies and being able to use use video conferencing, being able to share documents is all really valuable. And it's also that uh, making sure that we don't fall into the trap that because Gen Z have grown up with this stuff, inherently they know how to use it in a business setting, which I think is a yeah. fatal mistake. Because Absolutely. Yeah, it's something we found, and and it, like you say, it was a bit of a surprise to us. You know, we're pulling together these com most commonly used business software um, that you'd probably need to have heard about in a in a virtual internship, and students don't haven't heard of them. You know, they haven't heard of Trello. They haven't really often heard of Slack. Um, you know, Google Drive and Google Docs. They maybe have used a bit at university, but it's not. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, spot on. Um, that just because they are more proficient 
on computers and on digital stuff, they haven't they they haven't necessarily heard of the work the work side of things. Yeah, I mean, I've always equated it for so for my parents' generation where they grew up without cars, and then cars started to become available in the same way that kind of I was born into a world where the internet didn't really exist but as through my late childhood and, and into my early adulthood it starts to become available and so the the argument about the ability to use technology being better within newer generations is like saying that I'm a better driver than my mum because yeah it, and it I mean, it's true but that's just because <laughs> getting tickets I've got I've got documentary evidence as to why that's the case but yeah. it, it's that um a familiarity with technology doesn't mean that necessarily you're able to be able to use it what sort of support do you need to provide for the people providing the internships because this virtual remote working thing whilst much more common than it has been is still a new experience in many organizations and so to do it for an internship will be a new and possibly challenging experience for them you know we give them what we'd consider to be best practice um you know revolving around giving those projects making sure everything's clear um <clears throat> if you're booking a call with your intern you know like do check that they understand the time zone difference those kind of things the first time um the security piece i guess we've talked about a little bit um having the right access to software and what the expectations are is is quite important and we just encourage like early consideration of those things it's nothing worse than it's the first day of your internship and the host company kind of didn't realize that the intern was going to be using a mac with certain software or just did, hadn't put two and two together that they needed access to this to the crm and that just as if somebody was turning up in the office at 9 a.m you do have to make some preparations right you have to think I need them to be able to log onto the system. I know they don't need a chair or a desk, but they still need some other stuff, right? And some support. And we have had scenarios where, you know, businesses have slightly fluffed that. Um, and luckily, because it's because it's all virtual and remote, it's a bit less awkward. Um, you know, there isn't the intern knocking at the door at 9 a.m. They're just on the end of a video call. So, okay, give me a few hours. I'll sort this out. Terribly sorry I messed it up. Is, is less awkward than sort of saying, oh, do you mind going down to the coffee shop? Because actually we forgot to order a desk and a chair for you. Um, so in some ways it's okay, but it's it's important that businesses don't, you know, get complacent or use that as an excuse for lack of preparation. They still need to put together a project and really think about like how many hours it is as well, that kind of thing. It's, it's important. Yeah, I guess that's, um if somebody isn't physically there i think maybe actually you know maybe the culture in organizations now is getting less accepting of um late minute cancellations of video calls because it's not at, seen as as important as a face to face but i think it's still it's easier for stuff like that to get um dumped at late notice yeah possibly that in turn yeah um, um we de we definitely encourage like uh both interns and host companies to think about you know whether they need to improve their professionalism. Um, and that can include obviously punctuality and being on time, but also making sure you're in the right environment, um, you know, that you can't actually take a proper call in a noisy coffee shop. Um, you need to think about what what's going on in the background. And, um, you know, if you need to be on video, then who is going to be watching and should you put on a shirt with a collar? I say wearing a shirt with a collar. Um, I'm in a hoodie. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but you know what I mean, right? If, if yeah, uh, it's important to ask those questions in advance. And if you don't ask them, you it, it can easily turn into a lack of professionalism um, because you've just, you've just called it wrong. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a whole bunch of new etiquettes that are springing up around video calls and online communication. And, and there are definitely generational differences there that uh, I did some work with the government department last year where we introduced Office 365. And one of the critiques that came from some of the younger staff was that the range of emojis wasn't good enough. <laughs> and like, the IT that's management right. yeah. in their 40s are going, what? Well, what? Yeah. But actually, then when you look at it and you go, well, no, no, that, that's a perfectly valid, yeah, perfectly valid critique. Myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, um, uh, where where do you think um, organizations are going to go with this sort of stuff? Because it feel, feels like what you're doing here is you're starting to address at the edges now of uh, how working practice is changing. Because as we become increasingly virtual, as we become increasingly remote, it won't be all and everything, but it, it is definitely increasing. People have been looking at that from the traditional role of the employee in the office. But what you're now doing is starting to be at the edges of, you know, the normal day to day. Sure. Yeah. Do you have reflections on, on what, you know, other areas where that might start to have impact? Yeah. I mean, I think um, for an example, you know, remote working is growing really fast, but I think most businesses would still see it as a perk for someone senior and trusted they're like, okay, you've been in the organization five years and we know you always get your delivery on a Thursday or you do, you know, you need to do your laundry while you work on this spreadsheet. I think that, um, you know, Gen Z and millennials coming into the workforce actually are going to expect flexibility and want to be able to work remotely from day one. And so giving them the skill set and the sort of empowering them to, to get that right is important. Um, you know, we get the the digital nomad thing flung around a bit. You know, people actually potentially want to take a they want to take a year away from some of their life, but they still want to be doing engaging work, and that can benefit companies as long as they see it in the right way and put the right kind of procedures in place. I think it's fascinating. Like we we really don't know what the what future workplaces might look like, but giving people these skills will hopefully make them better employees in that kind of uh, flexible environment. So thank you to Ed uh, for making the time to talk with me. Um, and that last point, I think, is um, the thing that has been bouncing in my head since Ed and I spoke, which is um, we don't know what the future of work is going to look. We don't know what the future of knowledge work is going to be like. It's probably, probably going to be more um, virtual, more remote, although we don't necessarily know that for sure, and we might in a few years be all sitting in offices and cubicles again. But um, if it is going to be changing, kind of facilitated by technology, although not led, I don't think, by technology, um, the question of what skills people will need to come into the world of work changes, and the question about actually how we organise work, I think, changes. Because I think today all we've really done is taken existing working practices and tried to replicate them on um digital platforms in my often i talk about the the kind of evolution of the music industry as a way of thinking about different stages of digital disruption where you start with a, a record shop with cds in it and then you go to amazon selling cds 
um, so digitizing the transaction. Then you go to um, uh, iTunes, digitizing the transaction and the distribution because you could download the tunes, the songs, the the albums, but you're still buying units of music. And then you get to the Spotify model where you turn the business model completely on its head because you realize that you don't have to be tied to the old ways of working. And for me, ways of working, knowledge industries, I think we're at, at, at best iTunes, but probably mostly at the kind of Amazon digitizing some of the transactions, but not much else. Yeah, it's true. And um, for those, you know, as you say, what we call knowledge workers or kind of aligned roles where you are working in a purely kind of desk band capacity, then it's it takes me back, actually, the conversation maybe we had a little bit earlier about, about prisons and about the fact that, uh, you know, people who can't read and write. And one of the things that we were trying to do in the prison estate was teach people about you know, make sure that they were digitally in, in, included for example and some of the um and this happens right now okay and 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 it happens in in one or two prisons that, that prisoners do uh, work when they're when they're in, inside right they do and sometimes it's more manual work sometimes it's more clerical work and it, it that's does it's, that's done for several reasons mainly it's there to help them to be more used to the world of work when they come out rather than used to the world of not doing very much um and if the prison system was working well which it uh, absolutely is not but if it was working well that would be a common thing so there are prisoners for example on help desk duty and you can you might be on the end of a call and somebody will be helping you and they'll be a prisoner they'll be they'll be working in uh, an office environment within the prison and they'll be answering your call and they'll be and they, they'll be helping you maybe with a piece of software or with a with a with a with a query, and all of that is really good. It's great work because you can sit down and you can teach a bunch of people about a piece of software, for example, or about a service, and you can give them scripts, and then you can um, they can answer phones, and you can monitor them, and you can help them become better. And when they come out, they've got experience of actually working and helping people, and being and using computers, and all of those things, which don't necessarily happen and we even looked at doing that in cell so because we we're looking at the incel technology is available you could even do it from inside your cell and maybe even do it you know kind of you know these kind of um there are virtual call centers aren't they that you can sign up to and they're very very cheap and actually what they have is lots of people who may or may not want to work at any particular time but when they do have some time spare they sit down at a computer they log on and that you've got them as a, as a call center agent for however long it is that they're on and then when you haven't got them you haven't got them and that's it might be over capacity and you might say well you know you're not going to get many calls so you know we're, we're over capacity at the moment or it might be in the capacity where you're, where you're pinging people and saying you sure you don't want to do some work and that and that happens in a way that you can then bring on people who are who are you know you can't get much more uh, isolated than being locked up in a, in a prison cell so if you can do that why can't you work um, do a remote internship. I think it's a perfectly valid idea and very, very opposite, really, given the way that um, some of these jobs are going and the fact the fact that with you know, with our view on carbon footprint and uh, the cost of housing people in offices, etc. You know, we've talked about this before. The desk becomes a bit of a benefit rather than a rather than an albatross around your neck. But I also wonder whether the reason we have internships is that, so that people can learn. And whether it's quite difficult for people to learn about the world of work and about the kind of role they're meant to be doing when they're a long way away. In a prison, for example, you've got people in a room and you might be teaching them and eventually they'll be okay to work on their own. But 
it's a, I, I think that maybe some of those skills you learn when you are together with people and in a sh- sharing an environment with people are then the skills you can build on to, to work remotely rather than the other way around what do you think I, I yeah i can i can understand that i think that's probably though it's back to that point about how we've evolved working practice given where technology is at which is that working practice hasn't really changed very much in 100 years and that we've just digitized the transactions around it and that the you know the the, the fact that i think it's when i chatting with everybody talked about this that, that you know working from home is still seen as a privilege it's still advertised as a benefit a perk um there's a huge perk to the employer potentially um although often it doesn't get realized because they've not geared themselves around actually working remotely um but then you get challenges emerging which are harder to deal with if you're assuming still that management really only happens in person and there are you know the, the management all of management training is still predominantly based quite frankly on the idea that 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 actually still happens because i think that's in the last 10 years or 15 years since i was doing it full time i think there's been a big shift away from the idea of actually training people in management and leadership skills in person um and it's all been reduced down to bite-sized just-in-time nuggets of e-learning which is you know another set of challenges in its own but that the the nature if you're going to get an organization to operate purely on the basis of or predominantly on the basis of people working in flexible ways that aren't about being in the same office at the same time every day you need to think about how you structure work quite differently that i remember we spoke to um was it marcus the guy from um netguru a company based in Poland who they're totally remote and how yeah that's right you, I can't remember quite look, companies like 30 yes but I remember yeah, no, companies like um, 37 signals as well mm. who again have established themselves as completely remote based organizations um, but you know it's hard because you're having to do everything from scratch and I think the thing for me with talking with Ed was actually it really has got me thinking about how little we have started to really scratch the surface of what very virtualized organizations need to rethink to work properly. And you've got another generation of management coming into senior positions now who still essentially have only ever worked in the in-person model, even if a large proportion of their work hasn't been in person because the you know the prevailing wisdom is still large organization, management hierarchies, you know, people report to performance management, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe the future of this stuff is actually not big organisations. Maybe the future of this stuff is from having much smaller organisations that inter- interoperate with one another and provide service to much bigger organisations that themselves have become much smaller because they work in partnership a lot more. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I mean, a lot of this conversation is um, replaying our convers- uh, conversations with Pauline when we did the... Um, we talked about the flexible working stuff and the and the conversations that Pauline Yao has had with the um, flexible movement, right? So similar themes coming up, but also I'm trying, I'm just thinking about education as an example, right? So this just popped into my head. So bear with me. It's not necessarily a fully fully formed thought, but that's never stopped me before. <laughs> Remote uh, learning, what they call it, distance learning, has been there for a long time, right? You know, university yep. correspondence courses, all of that kind of thing. And um, the internet and uh, the, you know, the hugely uh, exploded ability for us to access coursework and materials and video and interaction and forums that we, you know, with fellow learners has made those, you know, really revolutionized the whole distance learning product or industry. But we are still sending 
people to university and that is still the thing that people want to do they want to go now yes there's other things that go on at university but still that is still the dominant predominant way of doing most formal education most degree type education you know phd masters type stuff but so why is that but well because and as somebody went to Asian university but as the son of of um the person who set up the UK's first master's course that was computer mediated. So before the internet with dial-up modems and BBC micros, my dad set up a course at Birkbeck that was doing distance um, learning stuff through computers. They, interestingly, they set it up though that it was based around people meeting in person and then having this as the support network to sustain and Birkbeck's a part-time college as well. So, that, But the reason why I think people still want to do this is it's got nothing to do with pedagogy or quality of teaching because I'd argue that actually the more prestigious the institution, the less prestigious the quality of the teaching because the more prestigious the institution, the more research-based they are and therefore teaching gets in the way of academics doing what they think they should be doing. But it's about cultural capital. It's not about education or economic elements per se. It's about actually the kudos, the cultural value that is associated with going up to Oxford or Cambridge or the next swathe in the UK is significantly greater than going to the Open University. And where those boundaries are, I don't know, you know, is Hatfield Poly or University of Hertfordshire as it is now in, you know, is that better or worse than the OU depending on the... But, but, that I've got no doubt is because there is a hierarchical pecking order based on the cultural and social value of where you went to university, and that in turn is partly about networks within as well. Yeah, you, yeah, I agree, but that still that still puts the whole um, distance learning industry way way down below even the most you know uh, what's the word I'm after humble establishment. <laughs> well, except except when it's those uh, top prestigious names because you see loads and loads of people on LinkedIn with their Harvard or MIT or even Oxford or Cambridge and then you dig into it and it's a postgraduate diploma that was done probably on distance through a franchise operation out of Singapore or something. But the 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 face it just comes back to what Jamie was saying on the show last week about how mm. Doctor Rouge manipulated yeah, of course, traditional yeah. media yeah, yeah. brand. Yeah. So it's I just I you know, education is is not about uh, or higher education is not about the education you receive as much as it is about the you know, the colour of the tie that you're able to wear afterwards. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm a practical person. I think if I was going to get a, an, a, an MBA or, or some postgraduate diploma from Harvard through a Singapore-based... I, I would just say I'd got it. I, I wouldn't even do it, you know, or I wouldn't even pay the money. Well, and <laughs> because uh, and who knows, because that, isn't, that isn't the case. It would be so meaningless as to say, well, if I'm, going to, if I'm, I'm not even going to go through the process of... <laughs> of applying and paying my $25 or whatever it is. I'll just say I've got well, to... Yeah, don't get me started on the subject of MBAs generally because then I went to another rant. But um, So I think that that... And I guess I get, this then comes back to it, isn't it? It's about um, maybe this is where we're at with the world of digital working is that this is the, the other little idea I keep coming back to around the difference between transactions and interactions that, you know, you can have a job where you're just sat at the end of a phone or a computer and you never interact with anybody else but how valued is that job seen when you then try to sell those skills to other employers they say so you've got no office experience 
and that that office experience isn't about the office experience per se it's about the cultural associations of working in a proper job and as somebody who has just gone back into a proper job after six years of working in a different form of working how difficult that can be to sell to people sometimes they don't believe that if you've not got evidence that you've had your bottom on a particular seat in a particular office for a particular number of hours a week that you have credible work experience oh well i don't know about whether that's credible or maybe work that's experience. just me i mean yes part, partly you were, you were probably ascribing the rejection uh, for other reasons to that <laughs> but i would also say that um people are often they're not looking for work experience really they're looking for a a, they're looking for a, a sign that you're not going to fail in their environment. Uh, no, absolutely. And it's, you're right, it's not work experience. And interestingly, there were some studies I saw recently that said that um, correlation between um, performance in a job and prior work success is very sketchy because it's all contextual. But what they're looking for, you know, I know my own CV, working for Microsoft, working for the BBC, working for the London School of Economics, working for KPMG right at the beginning is worth more than any of those particular jobs because of the name of the brand and therefore it's the well if if that lot thought he was all right then he's probably all right mm. i mean little do they know the sorts of people who hired me at those places <laughs> including i have to say my old boss so complete aside but uh, my old boss at the bbc i got in touch with in case i wanted to use him as a referee and he said yeah no problem at all matt i have to say though i might not be a great cult, um uh a character reference these days because I got arrested at Extinction Rebellion last week. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I um, uh, the, the, uh, the problem is that is there's a lot of uh, subjectivity, isn't there? And, and whether you are successful or not is is a matter for debate, not that necessarily a matter for absolutely absolutes. And I remember sitting in front of a guy um, who briefly took over an area I was working in. Um, in fact, I don't think I was even working in it, but I was working around it, and and there was a senior meeting, and uh, and he turned up, and he sat down in front of a bunch of people and said, "Right, this is how it is. Right, I'm taking over for a bit now. I have never failed at anything I've tried to do in my life. Right. Well, it won't surprise you to know that that person is probably definitely in the top five of utter assholes that I've ever worked with, um, and and utterly hopeless, completely hopeless at what they do, but will." smash the whole thing into their own form of what they would consider success which is just bizarre and and so unhelpful i don't understand how those people get work but there you go but they do well that's back to the fact there's a lot of psychopaths in senior positions um anyway so it's interesting stuff thought-provoking and what we need to think about around how work changes i think i'm still convinced we've only just started to scratch the surface um big thanks to ed for making the time uh we'll put a link to his um uh, company's website a word of warning and this is something I actually said to it it makes it look on their website like most of their money comes from people who are doing the internships that's one little model they've played with and they're very aware of the fact that that might seem extremely exploitative most of their money actually comes through universities paying for the placements to be arranged um, and it was something I fed back to him that I was a bit uncertain about actually even talking to him when I saw the website but they they understand that issue and um uh, it's uh, it's worth just flagging if you're going to have a look at it. Uh, it's interesting stuff. Well, that was excellent. Uh, another very um, thought-provoking interview because of all of the different uh, aspects that can come into that kind of work. And uh, thanks again to Ed for speaking to Matt. So, Matt, we've got the, your first week, your first full week in your new role coming up. Are you looking forward to that? 
I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, it's uh, a big learning exercise at the moment, working out how the organisation ticks, where its systems are at, what its suppliers are at. Um, and <laughs> day two on Tuesday, I'm off to finish up a piece of work for another client. So I've got four days with new job and one day doing the old stuff. So that should be uh, entertaining. Um, and also actually on uh, Wednesday evening, I think I am hopefully interviewing somebody who I've been trying to get on the show for a while, um, Sharon O'Day, um, which is going to be a fascinating conversation. I have no idea yet what we're going to talk about because Sharon's the sort of person where it kind of doesn't really matter. It'll be fascinating, whatever. Yeah, it will. Um, I remember trying to, um, and I remember Sharon uh, agreeing to uh, to be interviewed, but that was about a year ago, and uh, she's a busy person, and we don't uh, often get the chance to synchronise diaries. So it's really great that she's coming on because it's uh, there. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a great interview. Um, I've got uh, another week of uh, travelling around. I am going to uh, Germany tomorrow and for a day or so for some meetings, and then I'm going to Brussels on. Uh, some, some later in the week for a couple of days to do some work with some CIOs and uh, that will be interesting. I'll go and talk to some people at the commission. I'll uh, I'll, I'll take uh, Boris's letter, you know, if he needs me to take it personally. I don't mind dropping it off. Um, and and I'm looking forward to that because all of the uh, all of those interactions this week should be great fun. They're all a bit different and um, it they all involve uh, very cool people. And then I can come home uh, for another go at it next week. So. Yeah, nice, nice week ahead. Excellent. Well, enjoy it, and uh, we'll catch up next week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the internet at wb40podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at wb40podcast. And if you tweet us there, we can send you a link uh, so you can join the WhatsApp group, which is fabulous. Uh, and you can also find us on all good podcasting platforms where you should really leave us a review as we enter our fourth year. Okay, right. Now I'm going to do it. I'm just scratching my little um, <laughs> video camera. <laughs>